You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hello, everybody. It's Chris Spangle. Over the years, a lot of you have said that the World War I episode that I did, gosh, it's been two or three years now, uh, was one of your favorites and that I should do more history. And I want to do more history. I love history. I've been a lifelong history nut. And Matt Whitliff and I started the History of Modern Politics podcast in the vein of that World War One episode. That's kind of what spurred it on. And uh, we are four episodes in. We've recorded number five. And it is available to wall patrons, members of We Are Libertarians Plus, uh, or people can sign up on our substack at historyofmodernpolitics.com. And today only, July 4th, I'll let you guys, since a lot of you listen later, uh, it's going to run until July 6th. Uh, so if you're just now catching it, uh, we're offering 25% off an annual membership. And that money's going to go towards advertising for the podcast. So we'd love for you to join early if you haven't joined up yet. If you're a Wall Plus member at the $10 level, you already get the show. So make sure you check out that show in your feed. And if you're just not able to do it, you're not able to sign up, totally understand. The show will start rolling out January 1st, 2022, and it airs twice a month. And you can listen to it via an ad-supported feed, which is already out in the – excuse my voice. It's froggy because I I haven't spoken yet this morning – It is available now in podcast feeds. You can go grab that, listen to our first uh, test episodes that we did in 2018. Um, We've been working on this for a long time, so we hope that you enjoy it, and please check it out. If you are listening and enjoying it, please share this offer with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting the We Are Libertarians podcast network. We truly do appreciate it. Oh, and happy 4th of July. Odin was the father of Wecta, who was the father of Witta, who was the father of Withgils, who had two sons named Hengist and Horsa. Vortigern, king of the Britons, was besieged from invaders and sought support of mercenaries. The two brothers, Hengist and Horsa, brought men from Saxony to support Vortigern. They were successful and rewarded with lands on the eastern shore of the island and maintained peace with the Britons for some time. Vortigern fell in love with Hengist's daughter and married her, leading to demands by Hengist, who said, As I am your father, I claim the right of being your counselor. Do not therefore slight my advice, since it is to my countrymen you must owe the conquest of all of your enemies. Let us invite over my son, Okta, and his brother, Ebisa, who are brave soldiers, and give them the countries that are in the northern parts of Britain, by the wall, between Dira and Alba, for they will hinder the inroads of the barbarians, and so you shall enjoy peace on the other side of the Humber. The Britons were angry with Vortigern's commiserating with the mercenary invaders and found a new king to lead them. This new king, the great King Arthur, burned Vortigern's castle with him in it and marched to meet the Saxons in the great battle of Badon. King Arthur was victorious and the Britons were able to contain the Saxons for years to come. You're listening to the History of Modern Politics. My name is Chris Bangle, and that was the voice of Matt Whitliffe talking about the great King Arthur. And in this episode, we're going to focus on Britain from 410 to 825 and really lay out a lot of definitions that will help us in future episodes. 
just to kind of move us along so we uh, we don't confuse you when we talk about some of these terms in the future. But you, you started with King Arthur, and he's a famous knight, you know, the, the, the basis of Monty Python's uh, famous movie. <laughs> but was King Arthur actually a real person? We have no idea. Like, the historicity is, is really debated. There's no real evidence. Um, and, you know, the stories that I told you there at the beginning are drawn from about six different sources, never laid out exactly like this. So I took some creative uh, license with telling the story. But, you know, a lot, there are references in, in Bede to this Battle of Badon. Uh, Arthur's not named explicitly. The whole idea of King Arthur really comes later in the 1200s and the 1300s and the myth of King Arthur rises up. But there are, there are numerous people who historically may have actually been King Arthur or, or something like it. So, um, but it's interesting, right? Because uh, we, we hear references to Dira Alba that, you know, Alba was the name for Scotland at the time, the invaders, like, so th there is definite history that ties together here, whether these events actually happened like this, whether or not uh, Hengist and Horsa are actually the descendants of Odin, uh, probably debatable. Uh, Hengist is actually also named in reference, possibly the same Hengist in Beowulf, right? As, as fighting off with the Danes back on the continent. So it's interesting how all these pieces of folklore and folklore and mythology come together. And there are, you know, references to it throughout, uh, the historiography that we, we kind of cover in this period. So I think it's a, it's a cool way to set up what we're going to learn today in the Anglo-Saxons coming to Britain. Yeah, one thing about this period is there wasn't a lot of literacy, and so it was told through stories. I mean, when you think of ancient Greece, you often think of mythology and the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and you know, the Battle of Troy, for instance, nobody – it was so significant in the minds of people, but nobody knows what's history and what's not. And there's a lot of that, especially within the King Arthur myth – um, that that carries forward and Beowulf and and in the intro that you just mentioned, you see the blending of so many different stories. And that's partly due to the fact that the island of Britain is a mixture of natives and people from Ireland and people from Scotland and the Germanic tribes and the Franks in France and then the Scandinavians and the Danes and Vikings. And there's just so many different terms that that we want to kind of nail down just so as we move forward and talk about some of this stuff we don't get confused but it all ultimately will lead to a unified england and an england that we understand better because of greater literacy rates especially after the normans and once we get to the magna carta era in the 1200s but again we're in the four to eight hundreds right now and this period is when you really start to see a Christian Britain emerge, and obviously the influence of Christianity cannot be overstated in both the legal and the cultural development of the island, and eventually our politics as well. Um, now, the Anglo-Saxons were pagans, and they were followers of North myth Norse mythology, and this begins to change in the 6th and 7th centuries. So let's start with some of these tribes and nailing down some of the people that make up the the ethnicities and movement of the modern-day British person. Let's start with the Germanic tribes. Tell us a little bit about the Germanic tribes during the migration period and into the 5th century, Matt. Yeah, Chris. So, you know, we've we've covered 
the this notion of barbarians and the Germanic tribes in in our previous episodes in the context of the Roman Empire, and and now let's like kind of try to pull it together. So this this era in history by historians is is referred to as the migration period because all of these Germanic peoples um, who are a broad set of people with a common ethno-linguistic heritage um, initially identified as early as by Julius Caesar. If you remember, he kind of separated the the Gauls and the Celts as, as like the, you know, kind of barbarians and then the Germanic <laughs> people, they're the real barbarians, right? And and this is where it, where it kind of all starts. Um so you've got the Gauls to the to the west uh, of of the German the Germanic people. Uh these these they all reside in what is kind of central northern Europe at the time and to the east of that uh we'll we'll hear these names later are the Sarmatians and they're you know a, a kind of Slavic Iranian Scythian people. So the the Germanic folks <clears throat> we can divide into several subgroups and we'll start with the North Germanic tribes, the North Germanic tribes over time, you know, this phrase, the name go to the Northmen, the Norsemen, and it is really the Scandinavians who originated in modern day Sweden, branching over into Norway and, and into Denmark, the most, most notable, uh, tribe in this group are the Sweons, which today we know as the Swedes and ultimately the Danes. You also have the Geats. Um, they're referenced in the story of Beowulf. Um, and and that may or may not be the Goths, but the Goths, you know, kind of also come from some of this uh, same origin. And then we have other tribes that we'll discuss in, in some of the next few groups that may have originated in Sweden, but are, are in terms of the um, subgroups of the Germanic peoples, you know, ultimately landed in some other places. So we then move to the East Germanic peoples. This is modern day Poland and include tribes such as the Burgundians who, you know, end up in Southern France, eventually uh, establishing the Burgundian kingdom in, in 411. We'll talk about that more in, in next week's episode or next time's episode. Then we do have the Goths, <clears throat> which ultimately split into the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and play a big role in the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And then the Vandals, who, you know, start over here in modern day Poland, but ultimately, you know, are, are end up in modern day Spain and North Africa and scattered across islands in the, the Mediterranean. And yeah, Vandals, that's where we get the word vandalism <laughs> right. today. They just moved in and just started messing things up. Yeah, and then... And then moving west, you have the Elba tribe, the Germanic peoples who originated in modern day Germany, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And they include this group of people basically are often grouped together in the broader term of the Swabic or Swabian people. The Lombardians, who ultimately migrated south and settled in northern Italy, the Bavarians, of which I am descended, of which the German state of Bavaria is named, and various tribes in confederation known as the Alemanni, who settled in modern-day Switzerland, and the Alsace, eastern France on the border with Germany. And then further west, all right, so you're moving towards, you know, towards France, the Warser Rhine, which is in west-central Germany today. The only notable tribe among this group are the Franks, but they're a big deal, and we'll talk about them in future episodes. Now, rotating north and east from the Franks into northern Germany and Denmark and a bit of the Netherlands, we have the North Sea Germanic tribes, and this is the key group of interest for our episode today. Notably, the Jutes from the north of the Jutland Peninsula, modern-day Denmark, the Angles 
from the southern end of the Jutland Peninsula, the modern region of the Schleswig-Holstein. The Saxons, south and west of the Angles along the, Ger- the German coast of the North Sea, and the Frisians, further west along the North Sea coast of modern-day Netherlands and Germany. I love geography. I, I don't know about you. I, I know. I, and I hope we did a good job kind of visualizing that in your mind. But, you know, if we didn't do a great job, you can always go look at the map. And, and there, there's tons of maps out there. And I'll, I'll put some in the show notes for you guys that'll, that'll show you some of the breakup of some of this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, these migration patterns of the Germanic peoples, it, it's broad. And, and as you can see, they ended up, you know, started kind of all in this general area. And we kind of rotated clockwise around around where the various uh, subgroups came. But, you know, these it's the North Sea Germanic people, uh, the tribes that we noted especially started to cross the North Sea and moved west into the island of, of Britain. And we didn't mention it in the in the last times episode with uh, with the end of kind of the Roman period, but I mean there was a a whole thing called the Saxon Coast because the invasions from the Saxons was already beginning. There was a, a an official Roman post, a yeah. military post that was called like the Office of the Saxon Coast, and that resided on both sides of the English Channel on southern Britain and northern modern day France, uh, which is Normandy today, right? Um, because of all the activity and the migration that was coming, particularly from the Saxons. Yeah, and the North Sea is the you think of the United Kingdom, and just to the to the right of that is the North Sea, and then a little down you have Amsterdam and the Netherlands and Belgium and Brussels are, are kind of down to the to the lower right, and then directly across from the UK you have Denmark and Copenhagen. And then just kind of pointing northeast, think of two o'clock, you've got Norway and Sweden and Finland and like the the little thumb looking thing that comes down and points towards the United Kingdom. So hopefully that helps you kind of visualize it. Now, let's start. Let's move back to Britain and talk about the transition of power in Britain, because we've covered already the Romans left the island and local power starts to increase. The migrating tribes are successful at ultimately assuming leadership, both culturally and politically. And this transition is not well understood, but happened across the fifth and sixth centuries. And it's all very confusing because you have so many different groups of people invading the island and taking over and and a lot of turmoil and turnover. But we end up emerging into something called the Heptarchy or Seven Kingdoms. What is the Heptarchy, Matt? Yeah, so you know, the seven kingdom there are seven kingdoms that ultimately emerge through this period of time where the uh, Germanic peoples who have come over, uh, n- mostly it is the the Saxons, the Angles, the Jutes, and the Frisians. Um, establish different strongholds that ultimately, you know, consolidate regional power bases and, um, you know, come into becoming the seven kingdoms, which historians now refer to as the heptarchy. So, again, we're going to do some geography here because this will set the stage for understanding the dynamics in, in future episodes as we kind of think through the power struggles on the island. So we start in the north with with Northumbria. Uh, this is parts of modern day Scotland and Really, it's the territory north of the river, River Umber, which you, you know, was referred to in the open as well. So Northumbria is in the north. H-U-M-B-E-R. So if you Google it, it's H-U, not U-M-B-R. 
That's right. That's right. And yeah. so the Umber is a large estuary. It's not even a river on the eastern shore of the island of the North Sea. And to the, it's to the south of the Picts and the Caledonians, the tribes that are part of Scotland today that were constantly invading and causing trouble for the, the Celtic and Romantic Britons. Hence uh, the so, Antonine and the Hadrian's Wall. Exactly. And so this area was settled by the Angles. And had two sub kingdoms, uh, Ber- Bernicia in the north and Dira in the south, but it was ultimately merged into this one single kingdom of Northumbria around 654. And then you have East Anglia, which uh, was the kingdom to the south of Northumbria, also along the coastline, and that bumps out into the east on the North Sea there. And it was also settled by the Angles, defended to the west by the... It it had like a natural barrier with the marshlands of the Fens and the North Sea on the north and east. And it was split into the north and south folk that gave us the names of Norfolk and Suffolk. And then moving to the south of East Anglia, we have Essex, uh, one of the many... X's, right? As we kind of think through it. And that's named after the fact that these were the East Saxons, Essex. Uh, and the most notable, uh, city was London, which under Roman times was Londinium, uh, already a pretty major center, uh, in city, but, uh, that was the center of power inside of Essex. And then in the far southeastern corner of Britain, so think like four o'clock, five o'clock, is Kent. And it is located where the island is closest to the mainland Europe, and it is settled by the Jutes. Canterbury served as the seat of Kent. And then moving along west along the southern coast, so as, as Chris is referring to on the clock, down to six o'clock and a seven o'clock on the island of Britain, you have the South Saxons. This becomes the Kingdom of Sussex. This area, obviously settled by the Saxons uh, at various times, also included Hastings and the Isle of Wight. Um, those areas had originally been settled by the Jutes, but ultimately was taken taken over by the Saxons. And then further to the west and inland to the north of Sussex is Wessex. As you can imagine, it's west of Sussex. Uh, And this is named for the Saxons as well as their western kingdom. Now, the southwest of the island, modern-day Devon and Cornwall, remained held by the Celtic Britons along modern-day Wales. So, you know, Wales is sort of at the... um, I need to look at my clock. The the eight, nine o'clock of Britain. Yep. And then north of Wessex and east of Wales is in south of Northumbria is Mercia. Mercia sits in the center of England. It is, I guess, where the hands of the clock are emanating from. Right. And Mercia was settled also by the Angles. Right. So they share this heritage with Northumbria and really became the key center of power in the first couple of centuries as Anglo-Saxon rule begins to come together. And, and, and Anglo-Saxon, you know, at this time was not a phrase, was not a word. Right. But it's come throughout history to become the name to capture not just the Angles and the Saxons, but the the entirety of the North Sea Germanic tribes that came over to Britain. So the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, and the Frisians. Yeah, I think an important thing to keep in mind here is, A, just the lack of population. And, you know, towns were not 5,000 people. Like, if you had a town of 5,000 people in modern-day Britain, it'd be tiny. But we're talking hundreds of people banded together, um, smaller tribes, and you have no real communication. So, you know, there's riding a horse from Wessex to Essex to Northumbria. Like it's it's not possible in the same way that we can think of a, of a bigger political state in the modern day. It was a much smaller um, 
island, and so that's why you have these disparate groups. But you start to see some centralization begin to take place. In and, and explain the concept of Brett Walda. What exactly is that? Yeah, so we get the, the, the name of a Brett Walda from our friend Beat, the, the monk who was in Northumbria and uh, one of the few chroniclers of the time that we have historical records from. And so Beat notes that there were uh, a handful of Brett Waldas who who came to have supremacy over the other kingdoms of the Heptarchy. And so the, the, there's some dispute as to how this word actually translates, but it's either broad ruler, right? The, a wide ruler, Brethwalda, or a ruler of Britain. Brit, you know, so the, that is how this comes. And, and Bede gives us a list of the people who were Brethwaldas. And the first Anglo-Saxon king uh, to, to have that, name or that title bestowed upon him was Ella. We, we don't know much about Ella. Uh, he is noted by Bede and other chroniclers. So there's, there's multiple references to him. And we believe he reigned from around the 480s to the 510s. You know, interestingly, back to our story in the open, there is some, you know, possible possibility that he was actually the leader of the Saxons who fought against uh, King Arthur, whomever it was in that battle of Badon. So a few generations pass before the next Brett Walda comes to power, and that's Seelwin of Wessex. And he likes Cholin. 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 All right. All right. Let's C E A W L I N. These Anglo Saxons need to get it together for 21st century Americans. Uh, now, he likely reigned from the 560s until about 590 when his power was eclipsed by Ethelbert of Kent. And this transition is notable because Wessex later becomes the power base of future kings, and Kent is the site of emerging Christian power in Anglo-Saxon Britain. More on that in a little bit. So, B goes on to mention four more Bretwaldas, and the last three of whom are from Northumbria, suggesting that the North had broad power of the South during this time, essentially the first half of the 7th century. So, you know, t tell us a little bit more about... Um, the concept of Bretwalda and some of these kings. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, now now the power starts to transition south into the kings of Mercia. And so the the second to last Bretwalda in Bede's list is Oswu, who's, you know, recognized now as a saint by the Church of England. So, you know, Christianity is fully coming uh, to, to the island. Uh, Oswu is killed in a battle against King Penda of Mercia in the Battle of Maserfield in, in 641. And this now establishes the period known as the Mercian supremacy within the Heptarchy. And, and Mercia is now the center of power for much of the next 200 years, uh, really into the early 800s. And the height of their power comes during the reigns of King Offa and King Chonewolf. Um, we're, we're not going to be able to get into all of the stories here. There, there's some great stories. And, and for for the fact that this is in the dark ages and there's not a lot of written history, I, I can't recommend more the British of the hist the the British history podcast. Um, mm. He does an amazing job and goes like literally uh, probably a hundred episodes that covers this period. So there, there's a lot of stories we we can't get into all the detail, but if this is an interesting piece, uh, there's there's no better source than going to the the British History Podcast. Yeah, and it's in our show notes. And uh, for folks who are subscribers at historyofmodernpolitics.com or We're Libertarians Podcast Network patrons, you get our full show notes 
and you get reading lists, and they're really detailed reading lists from all the things that Matt and I have recommended and read and preparing for this stuff. And we'll put that in there. And I'd also say Bead is a good read, too. And there's a, a companion to Bead that's in the in the book recommendation that helps a lot, too. But Bead really kind of goes into all this stuff in, in a fun way, even though sometimes it's a little weird. So you, <laughs> you start to see power struggles between the church via the archbishops of Canterbury and Kent and the Mercian kings. Ultimately, it weakens Mercia. And in 802, Egbert... King of Wessex begins his reign, which challenges Mercia with military victories in 825 and 829, establishing the first West Saxton Bretwalda since, what, what is that, Kale? Cholin. Cholin. Yep. We pick up the legacy of Egbert in episode seven. That's how you have to pronounce it. It's just the Anglo-Saxon way, Matt. I, I don't that's, know that, that's right. And, and so, you know, at this point, Bede is no longer, he's, he's passed away. So the notion of Brett Waldas at this time is now beginning to come from the, the documents known as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, which were written by the descendants of, of Egbert. Uh, that again, no, no spoilers to give away here. We'll, we'll pick those up in, in episode seven. But, you know, this this time, it, it's also important to note that, like, the Mercian supremacy era with King Alpha and King Chonewolf, I mean, they were contemporaries of Charlemagne, who we'll talk about in next episode, and and treated with him, traded with him, negotiated. So, I mean, they were truly powerful rulers and seen uh, and had visibility on throughout the rest of the continent in, in Europe as, you know, strong, strong leaders. Well, we mentioned the Archbishop of Canterbury, and religion starts to play a more important role. But we need to start with the beginning. Now, Christianity existed through the Roman period of Britain. You know, there were bishoprics, uh, loose bishoprics in places like York and London. Um, but once the Romans left and the pagans and the uh, Vikings and everyone took over – now, pagan, again, is a Christian term from the Middle Ages to – you know, be mean to all the people who weren't Christian. Um, but they they took over, and it really started to diminish the presence of Christianity. Um, and in comes St. Patrick. And you all know him from March 17th, and you've heard some vague stories about snakes, and you know the shamrocks and all that stuff. But St. Patrick is actually one of the most influential people in the British Isles. He is credited with being the first major missionary for Christianity in the British Isles, especially Ireland. And it existed now, um, but Patrick was like the first to form a movement around it and yeah. set up a lot of monasteries and was hugely influential. Um, we don't really know. Th there's a two Patrick's theory. We don't know when he lived, but how do we kind of know that he existed and when? Yeah, we have a, a couple of written works. We have a, a, a declaration or a confession from Latin, and and then we also have uh, the letter to the soldiers of Coroticus, right? So in, in this, he uses the name Patricus, uh, you know, obviously Latin influence here. And through through this and the way he, you know, quotes uh, the Bible and, you know, the mix of use with the old Latin Bible and the Vulgate, we think he probably lived in, in the 400s, right? So this is right around the time when you know Rome is is leaving Britain and the the Anglo-Saxons are just 
first really starting to, to st- settle and establish themselves on the island. So Patrick was born, we believe, in, in Roman Britain and captured by Irish pirates and was held captive for, for six years. And during this captivity, uh, it, it forced the son of a deacon to focus on his faith and he, you know, converted to Christianity. Uh, he's able to flee his captors. He, he returns home and sees a vision which prompts him to return back to Ireland as a missionary. Yeah, and this was a precarious position because, and we know all of this basically because of his autobiographical works um, that that we dated in the in just a minute ago. But his position was precarious because if you remember episode one, there's a clan structure, and you're granted protection based on your joining a clan. And as he moved through the country, he would refuse gifts from kings, which. I don't know about you, Matt, but if a yeah. <laughs> uh, in the 400s a king is giving me a gift, I'm probably going to take it. But that is a a sign that you are they are protecting you, and you're they're then under their thumb. Now he refused that, so he was often on trial or in captivity or condemned to death, and he would escape those situations. And ultimately, says he baptized thousands across Ireland and starting new Christian communities out of the Celtic polytheism that existed at the time. Um, but there's a couple little things that are associated with St. Patrick that we want to uh, teach you about before we move on to St. Augustine. What What is the origin of the shamrock, Matt? Yeah, so the shamrock, uh, you know, the, the clover, of course, right, uh, that we see on St. Patrick's Day and associated with Ireland. You know, Patrick would use the three leaves of the clover or the shamrock to illustrate the concept of the Holy Trinity of, of you know, the, the three parts of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all being one together through uh, through this, this you know, mysterious concept of the Trinity. So next time you go out binge drinking on uh, March 17th, remember Jesus when you see that, uh, that <laughs> shamrock. Now, what about the snakes? Because he, yeah, the, and- the whole idea that he, he used a flute or something like Peter Pan to get the snakes out of Ireland and drove them all out. <laughs> is that true? We probably don't know, Chris, but, uh, you know, writings back to the, to the third century, you know, indicate that there probably were not snakes in Ireland, but we, you know, based on glacial forces and stuff, but, but Patrick has received credit from histories in the eighth and ninth centuries. So the, the obvious assumption here is that he, you know, he made the island so holy that the evil one could no longer exist in Ireland. Right. And so, no, there isn't evidence that he drove out snakes. It was later revisionist historians trying to give him a prop up, a leg up and say, look at how holy this guy is. I love, because many people in later centuries would identify with a saint um, as their protector and would want to pump that person up. So the next big figure comes along about a hundred years later, and his name is St. Augustine. And no, it is not St. Augustine of Hippo, the one that you've heard about, or even the great city, my favorite town, St. Augustine, Florida. (laughs) Um, Tell us a little bit about St. Augustine. Yeah, so so Saint Augustine is is the first major Christian figure then to come to England, and um, he was appointed by Pope Gregory the Great, uh, who was you know extremely influential in in helping build the Catholic Church to become a missionary to Britain in 597, and so the the British Church was in disarray. The you know the pagans are here now, the Anglo-Saxons practicing you know Norse mythology and and various things because if you remember. You know the the Celtic or Romano Britons are are 
pretty much, uh, you know, um, contained to what is now Wales and Ireland and maybe the very northern parts of, of the island where, where the what is now Scotland. Right. And so the with trying to get help from the bishops from Gaul, you know, the church is it, it's growing and they really need an authority there to help try to manage the affairs. Irish missionaries had tried to help settle a, a, a presence with the church, but they really didn't make much of an effort to convert the Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, they were, so, a, little, they were a little scared of them. They were a little scared. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the um, the reality is that, like in the book of Acts, you see Peter and Paul settling church the whole second half of the Bible. The New Testament is Paul trying to help settle issues within the church because it was a very uh, important uh, structure to settle disputes between people. So, there's some speculation that the the wife of King Ethelbert of Kent that we mentioned earlier was a Christian. Her name was Bertha, and she wanted her pagan husband to allow her the freedom to worship, and that she that he then sent for a holy man to come from Rome to the island to talk this religion over. Um, now, another uh, story about the prompting of St. Augustine being sent to the island comes from our friend Bede, and he recounts that Pope Gregory saw two fair-haired British slave children with angelic features, and he was so taken by their looks and, and their, their holiness that he wanted to convert their people to Christianity. Now, Bede, remember, is a historian trying to you know, promote English, the English people, and, and make them great. Now, it is probably more likely that Gregory wanted to settle a lot of these disputes and sent someone to Kent because it was the main power base in England at the time, and it was best situated to communicate with the European con- uh, continent. Continent, yeah. yeah if you so- remember, right, uh, Kent is in the in the southeast corner of of England, which is the closest piece uh, part to the in the English Channel to mainland Europe uh, across the Channel to France. There, and and I I've got to back up for just a second on on the Pope Gregory story from Bede because. Even in Latin, the play on words works, and and the joke is that uh, I'll probably not get this exactly right, but P- Pope Gregory was like, "Oh, they're not they're not angles, they are angels, right? right? So right. not angles as in the the Germanic tribe of the angles that we've talked about, but angels, and and it works in Latin as well. <laughs> and that was not a slip up. Pope Gregory was making a joke, and he was often a very witty pope, and would tell jokes like that, um, and was trying to make his his boys laugh. Um, now, Augustine was well-educated, but a bit terrified of the prospect of this mission, so he was, like, begging Gregory to come back, because he had a really cushy position as head of uh, a Benedictine monastery in Rome, uh, you know, St. Andrews, I believe it was, and so he was he was not looking to leave Rome to go to, like, the wilds of Britain to talk to a bunch of uh, rough Anglo-Saxon kings, but he went through, he was denied the reprieve, he went through... Uh, and he traveled on to Kent, and Bede recounts this great meeting with Ethelbert, and he converted him to Christianity, which meant his entire kingdom had to convert as well. And the reason this is important is that this is the first in a trend that led to a growth strategy for the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. By marrying power and religion, Matt, the number of souls saved would be much greater in the numbers than a speaking to people one-on-one. If you got to report back to the Pope how you're doing, if you need to, to show how many TPS reports you got, isn't it better to have 500 than one? Absolutely. And, and the timing couldn't have been more fortuitous here because Ethelbert, if you recall from the earlier part of the episode here, was one of the Brett Waldos. So yeah. 
you know, it just so happened that at the time that uh, Ethelbert happened to marry uh, Bertha, who we believe was Christian, I think if I recall, she was actually from Belgium, uh, modern day Belgium, if I recall. Um you know, now you've got Ethelbert who has some sort of kind of Brett Walda supremacy power over other parts of, of the heptarchy, now a Christian and able to extend that influence even further. Uh, it Yeah, it also, the church got to operate um, and avoided the problems of St. Patrick, and so it was just a great idea to marry, you know, think about now, you, you want to get ahead, you really got to buy a politician. So the Archbishop of Canterbury, we mentioned that, and you've probably heard of it. Uh, the the Archbishop of Canterbury seems like a big deal, uh, but you may not know why it's important. It's the symbolic head of the Anglican Church, um, and it is the holder of one of the five great C's, S-E-E-S, uh, which means yep. like a a, 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 a regulatory boundary i don't know another way yeah, to put it holy district or something like uh, that yeah. yeah so along with york london durham and winchester and the archbishop of canterbury is ex officio one of the lords spiritual of the house of lords and he's one of the highest ranking men in england ranking directly below the royal family thank you to wikipedia for that uh, paragraph mm-hmm. um now matt he Gregory had sent him thinking that there ought to be two archbishoprics, one in London and the other in York. But he didn't understand what was going on. So it, it ended up basically uh, in Canterbury because it was a better base. They could get the land. They worked with Ethelbert. And this ends up setting up the eventual feuds between Canterbury in the south and York in the north, as we'll see many times and many episodes over. But I think before we close up, we should talk a little bit about you know, we know a lot of this because of Bede and the monastic culture. And there's a great book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Why were monasteries and monastic culture at this point so important? Well, I mean, the most important piece here, right, is it is principally the only place where education is is happening in any sort of structured way. Right. So, um you know, we'll we'll get into feudalism and, and you know, kind of life in, in the Dark Ages and early Middle Ages here later. But you know, the monastery is established as the place where you can go learn. There's the only place where there are books. Um, and so, and, and people who can write. <laughs> so, yeah. so the history that we have received is largely tied to either monasteries or through the offices of, of the king. Yeah. And it should also be noted, like, it gives you a measure of power and influence over the times. Because, you know, when Bede wrote his work, it was dedicated to a king, and it was circulated amongst the nobility and the kings and the political powers and the, the heads of churches and the literate people at the time. And it was it was almost like he was writing a the history – like Thomas Paine was writing in 1775 to convince people of something, right? And it should be noted that Bede never, in the history of the ecclesiastical history, the ecclesiastical history of the British Isles, right? Meaning the history of the church in Britain, he never no. mentioned St. Patrick. And because he, because St. Patrick 
was the head of a Celtic Christianity that the Roman Christians didn't like and often argued over about the date of Easter and practices and who, how you wear your hair called the tonsure. Like think of yep. Friar Tuck with the circle and that's not good. You need to have your whole front of your head shaved instead of the just the back circle. And so many of the history that we are reading today was written by these monks and it had a political backing in and what and they're also limited by what they can find like he was very um the monastery he was in had a ton of books but it was still limited history because you didn't have archaeology yet you didn't have carbon dating you didn't have the vantage point that we have but bead is a fascinating read and i highly recommend it um any any final thoughts here matt on on that no i mean uh i think that's a great summary and and you know the the place that monasteries and monasticism play will you know will be a theme that will will come up through future episodes and you know the the differences between the celtic church and the roman catholic church like you mentioned i mean still different flavors of catholicism different flavors of christianity very much mirror some of the schisms and debates that were happening in in on the continent between the you know western church and the eastern church the you know the byzantines and such so um you know i think we can leave it there for this week you we're going to pivot and uh, for the next episode and follow roughly the exact same time period, but move back over onto the European continent. Um, so that's what we've got to look forward to next. Thank you for listening to the history of modern politics. We really appreciate it. We'd love for you to go and support the show. If you're enjoying this over at history of modern politics, join there. You get our show notes, our reading list, you get the episodes, early release of the episodes, commercial free episodes, uh, you can get that either at historymodernpolitics.com or become a member of the We Are Libertarians podcast network, Patreon at joinwallplus.com. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. And we appreciate you, the listener. And if you enjoy this, the number one thing you can do is share this, tell people about us. That's the best way a podcast grows. And we will see you again in two weeks.